probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome back to the Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me again today is... Alexander Morrison, GeekRex.com. All right, so back at it again. We're talking about Minute 58 today, which begins with Fuchs telling everyone that there's whole blood in storage that they can use for the test, and then it ends a minute later with uh, McCready asking who's got access to it uh, after they discover that the blood's been destroyed. So, yeah, like you mentioned yesterday, after that kind of silent moment when they all kind of have this realization that they can't trust anyone anymore, immediately we get a a situation where that, that, you know, the last thread of trust between any of them is totally shattered because the uh, the test that they want to perform to figure out who's human and who's not, who would maybe put them at ease and, you know, solve the mystery and put it to rest. They can't do it because somebody has, has messed with the blood that they're going to use. So I do want to mention that first, before they go back inside, uh, we get another moment uh, where Fuchs is kind of having a one-on-one conversation with McCready, where um, just a couple weeks ago, Kyle and I talked about uh, the first time that Fuchs and McCready have a kind of intimate conversation. And I do think, I thought it was interesting to find out when I started, you know, researching for the podcast that there are a lot of, a lot of folks online who, who uh, have a shipping thing going on between Fuchs and McCready, that there's kind of this little, little tidbits of maybe a relationship between the two of them, because Fuchs is very willing to trust this heli- this drunken helicopter pilot for some reason. Um, and like, you know, kind of clue, he's always the he always goes to McCready to fill him in on everything. Uh, so obviously Fuchs is kind of an interesting character in the movie. And this is another moment where he's kind of the worry wart and wants to kind of, uh, you know, latch on to McCready and, and, um, you know, try and try and warn him from what he's doing. Yeah. And you know, that, that scene is interesting to me, not just because, you know, I, I agree. Uh, Fuchs and McCready have definitely at least given each other hand jobs. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that the other thing that really interests me uh, about this scene is, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Fuchs really doesn't come back uh, in a big way. Like, he uh, kills himself. Mm-hmm. And we never even know for sure why. He is told to research the journals that drove Blair insane. <laughs> and just then he seems to, uh, McCready guesses that he <laughs> lit himself on fire before the thing could get to him, <laughs> which is uh, a horrifying end, but also uh, plays into the kind of escalating madness in a really interesting way and gives it a Lovecraftian vibe that, I think is really kind of hovering beneath the surface of the movie. 
Yeah, I think you're right. We I don't know if we've really talked about the kind of Lovecraft vibe uh, very much uh, so far in the show. I think it kind of ramps up towards the end, like you said, when, when the kind of madness is really taking over. And but yeah, that that's the sense when he does uh, die, you know, off screen and 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 continues to be a total mystery. It's never solved, you know, why he died or or even necessarily if that was him. They just assume it's him because they find his glasses with the burned up skeleton. You know, so it's it is one of those things where it's you know kind of an unknowable Lovecraftian idea, I guess. Um, but yeah, Fuchs is certainly an interesting character. I, I kind of almost think of him as like the um, he's like the conscience of the group or or something like that. I don't know. He's he's certainly the most emotional person of the group. Um, well, in terms of any emotion other than like fear and anger. <laughs> yeah, he he's the only one who seems to uh, have just blind trust. You know, I mean, he even finds what looks like MacReady's torn up underwear, but he doesn't turn on MacReady. Um, and so, yeah, Fuchs is a really interesting character. And for a movie that doesn't give a lot of answers, you know, you, you never know exactly who turns whom when. Right. But um, Fuchs is kind of one of the biggest mysteries of the movie, but also in a, in a way that doesn't entirely matter because he really is, as, as you just said, he's kind of the conscience of the group in a way, or the, the most trusting. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's fitting that after that moment of silence where we pan away, we're done with him. He's gone. He's no longer the calming influence on the group because uh, he kills himself as they turn on one another. Yeah. I mean, he he definitely has the kind of saddest end of of the, all the characters in the movie, and yeah, this is this is that you know when he kind of turns back to look at Blair one last time before he goes back into the base, it's almost like he's like, okay, I know this is not this is not the way to go, but here here we go. Like you know, he, he kind of knows something that it's not going to work out. You can kind of tell. <laughs> So they do go, they they make it inside, and we have a, a shot that I never really noticed before, but I, I find really, really interesting on, on closer rewatch. This shot where we've got the close-up on these these feet kind of walking towards the, the pooling blood and then opening the, uh, the fridge to find that the blood's all been kind of drained from the packs. And I think it's it's interesting for a couple of reasons because mainly because we don't see who it is and we don't see their face specifically. We don't see their face when I, I'm I think we're supposed to think it's Copper, but we uh, don't see his face when he says uh, somebody got to the blood, which is really interesting to me because I think on kind of a subliminal level it almost because we don't see him say it. One, it's just kind of a subtle like you know, we don't know who this is. So there's a little bit of mystery to it, but also we don't see him say it. So you can almost imagine that he's saying it without any kind of passion, like, you know, that he's almost, that he is assimilated and that he already knows that this has happened. The, the footsteps are not worried at all. They're very kind of calm the way that person walks into the room. I, it's kind of unnerving on a really kind of subtle level, I think. And I, I never really noticed that before. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And I, I you know, I mean, as we said um, a couple episodes ago, uh, with the blood, with the blood drawing, or not the blood drawing, but with the needle going into uh, mm-hmm. Blair's arm, one of the things that Carpenter likes to do in this movie is kind of force you to be closer than you want, and that sometimes has a disorienting effect, but sometimes it has the effect of kind of uh, mysteriousness, you know, like. Uh, early very early in the movie we get the dog wandering the hallway Mm -hmm. and you see that he goes into a room with a silhouette 
but you don't get to know who it is yet or ever necessarily. Yeah. You can, you can guess, but you don't know. And that's one of the things that the movie does well. You know, there are, there are some people I know who are frustrated with the movie because uh, even watching very closely, you can't always say like who is whom when, um, you know, who is the thing and when. Right. But that's one of the things that I like about it because it takes it from being kind of an intellectual exercise where you're trying to outsmart the movie to putting you in the space that the characters are in where you just can't know. Um, you can't intellectualize it. You can't outthink it. You have to accept that any of the people that you're watching could be the thing at any time. And just just like these characters, you kind of aren't sure who you can trust. Uh, and you have hints. You have clues uh, that you can put together, but that's all they are. Yeah, no, and, and I, I love that. I mean, you know, I, I'm a, you know, <laughs> I, I always remember, you know, seeing movies. Um, the the one that comes to mind immediately is uh, No Country for Old Men, where you get that very kind of ambiguous, kind of uh, strange ending. And I remember seeing that and hearing immediately when the credits rolled, hearing people in the theater going like, "What?" or like, <laughs> you know, like just being really frustrated with it. But so, you know, this is not the movie for you if if you're that person. But um. Yeah, I think that that kind of ambiguousness and the fact that the kind of hints that they give, like you said, are are just vague enough that you could you feel like you could put the pieces together if you really tried, but you really can't. It's uh, it's kind of a frustrating thing, but in a good way, because, uh, you know, like you said, it puts you in the in the shoes of the characters in the movie where they feel like the the solution is just outside of their grasp. I mean, just like the scene where, you know, they had an idea and they were they were had thought they had it under control and then it immediately just slipped out of their fingers. So, yeah, it is kind of a kind of a frustrating mystery, but in, in a good way, I think. <laughs> yeah. And um that, that that describes a lot of the movie. Uh, I think a lot of the tension of the movie comes from frustration, uh, which is really hard to do. Obviously, audiences don't like being frustrated. <laughs> but um, that is where a lot of this tension comes from, is Carpenter purposefully withholding things that he could tell us. And that would make maybe a tighter movie, because you'd be able to pinpoint when happens what. But as we were just saying with Fuchs and the kind of Lovecraftian vibe, part of the idea here is the more characters know, the worse off they are. The more they learn about the thing and what's going on in their encampment, the more they fall to madness. And that is taken to an extreme with Fuchs and Blair. But Carpenter is even kind of passing that on to us, where... In a way, you know, it's 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 protecting us from from knowing too much to really feel the movie the way they are. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, and and you know, definitely one of those kind of uh, another layer to this movie, and, and just another reason why it works so well, and why it's such a such a last why it's been such a lasting presence in the in the horror you know cinematic language. So uh, let's let's talk a little bit about this scene where they've uh, where they've just discovered the blood. So. First of all, um, I think it is interesting that they talk about how whoever sabotaged it, uh, that they did after they did that, they closed it and locked it up again. So I, I'm not sure why that would be necessarily if it's just, you know, maybe maybe the thing is trying to uh, to kind of make them suspicious of each other so that they kind of, you know, make mistakes and get jittery. 
or or what i'm not sure but it does seem like this just happened because the blood is like just starting to seep out of the the uh the the fridge so you know and clark was the only one who wasn't with them so it's another i guess clark and uh Knowles was not with them either so it's another moment where they're like you know intimating maybe that clark is the person who uh who we should be suspicious of but then on the other hand you know i think that for the audience it also raises the question of you know clark and Knowles weren't there so they couldn't know that they were about to go for the blood that's true um in fact, the thing might not have even known that they had a whole bunch of blood. And I think that it also helps set up, you know, because this is one of those things that we never know. We don't know how they got access to this because we know that Gary and <laughs> Gary is not the thing at this point. Gary mm-hmm. is not turned. And so consequently, nor I think is Copper, correct? No, no, they yeah. neither yeah, so uh, Gary and Copper are not turned, and they are the only two people who have the key. So this is one of those moments where we have a mystery that is, on the one hand, unfair, because there isn't an answer. But on the other hand, it really does raise the raise the tension. You know, it, as the audience, it forces you to choose, do you trust Gary or Copper more? Who, who looks like they're being more honest here? And in the end, they're both telling the truth. But you know, I think that if you were to pause the movie at this moment and ask, every single person watching would pick one of those two people as the thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. There's a lot of stuff that kind of goes into that little, that argument with the two of them uh, that we get to a little bit more tomorrow. But um, in the in the novella who goes there, there's a, it's a very kind of creepy moment, actually, where they, they, I can't remember exactly how it happens, but I think it has something to do with the they, the blood test that they perform in the book. They figure out that either I think they test their two blood, their samples of their blood together, Gary and Copper, and there is a reaction. And so all they can discern is that one of them is the thing and one of them is human, but they don't know who is who, (laughs) which is a really kind of creepy notion to know that, you know, it's not just like, you know, that somebody in the group is it's like, okay, one of these two guys is, but we'd have no way to know which one is which. (laughs) Yeah, that's an Um, interesting and I can see why they didn't do that here. But that's a really interesting thing to play with uh, that uh, is something the movie largely avoids. Uh, There are actually very few times, I think, where they have it really narrowed down. And most of the time, when everyone thinks they know who the thing is, they're wrong. Actually, I think every time. Pretty much. Yeah. You know, everyone thinks it's McCready and they're wrong. McCready thinks it's Childs and Clark and he's wrong. They all think it's either Copper or Gary and they're wrong. Yep. Meanwhile, none of them think it's Blair. Uh, They leave (laughs) Blair by himself, you know, in that cabin and he is eventually turned. I also think that it does play with the idea, something that'll come back up later too, which is the thing clearly has the ability to get in and out of locked spaces. Blair's <laughs> door was locked. And even if you argue that Blair was turned at the time, that still doesn't understand how he unlocked something that was locked from the outside with a key he didn't have. Right. So I think that you have to, you have to, this is when you start grappling with the fact that regardless of how, the thing can get in and out of even the most secure places on the base. Right. That's just another, like, you know, there's, there's no, no place you can hide. There's no like 
locking this thing away and, and keeping it a- away from you at all. Um, yeah, that's another thing that in the novella, I think they kind of talk about how it can almost, you know, because it is sort of a shapeshifter that it can almost, you know, turn into liquid and go through, go under doors or through ventilation shafts and things like that. Um, but yeah, I like that that's not brought up in the movie. You just have, sort of have to make come to that realization yourself that there is no safe place. But I do like, uh, you know, we'll talk about the, you know, in the next minute they talk about the keys, but you, you mentioned it earlier that, uh, you know, they, they kind of bring that up. And I think the, in this, I think it was last minute actually where Gary gives Copper the keys to go check on this. And I think this is one of those, it's a really interesting bit of sound, uh, sound mixing. One of the places where you can really see how that can affect a movie, uh, in a really interesting, subtle way. And every time the keys are handled up to this point, it's really loud in the mix so that you notice. And the, the, the trick to how the thing maybe did get the keys and did get in, regardless of whether it can get in and out of locked doors, is that uh, earlier when Windows sees Bennings with those kind of tentacles wrapped around him, he drops the keys that they borrowed from Gary. Uh-huh. And so at some point, somebody might have gotten to them at that point in the movie. Yeah. So it's one of those things that, you know, I, I love that because it's kind of the value of of continuity and sound in movies. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I just always thought that was kind of interesting and, and, you know, it adds a little bit of a, throws a wrench into some of the arguments about, about whether, you know, why these guys suspect these uh, Gary and Copper when, you know, there was maybe a, a, another way somebody could have gotten to it. Yeah. So I I do like here too, that also um, Childs immediately, once they see that the the blood has been tampered with, Childs immediately asks, where's Clark, which... (laughs) Uh, begins this whole thing where everybody, but in particular, Childs has like uh, really has it out for Clark. And I, I, I might have mentioned it in, in an earlier episode too. But they, um, the two of them were were like uh, Keith David and Richard Mazur, the two actors that play those characters, were the two biggest guys in the cast. And so when they kind of did rehearsals, they kind of built this into their characters that they were kind of uh, in competition with each other, that they didn't really like each other because you know physically they were kind of the two strongest guys at the at the outpost. So I, I think that is interesting that Childs immediately throws out, you know, he's immediately accusatory of Clark and Clark is, Clark is already right there and is very, is like, I'm here. Like, you know, <laughs> Clark kind of, I think Clark knows he's kind of screwed at this point. <laughs> well, and it, it's, I think it's interesting because the pacing of the movie thus far, a lot of the things that they've set up won't come back for you know 20 30 40 minutes but starting with that pivot uh i think this was a good way to show like you know like the 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 pace of the movie has fundamentally altered after that pivot that we talked about you know i mean we go from literally this is the third minute we've discussed and in the first minute wilford brimley says look out for clark in the second minute uh mccready uh says (laughs) look out for clark and now we've got Childs immediately willing to turn on Clark. Yep. And so, I mean, the the tension is ramping up much, much quicker than anything happened earlier in the movie. And I think that that's just a nice, like, one, two, three punch to just tell you that the the, the rules of what you've been watching have changed between these people now. Right. And just how fast, like, you know, in the beginning of the movie, we spend half an hour being kind of suspicious or wary of this dog before anything actually happens. But like you say, here in the span of three minutes, we go from, hey, Clark might be somebody to look at, uh, you know, look at when we're trying to figure out who's human and who's not to, you know, hey, Clark, where's where is he? Like, Clark is the guy who did this for sure. (laughs) (laughs) 
So yeah, it definitely kind of ramps up the, the speed of the pacing too. I did want to mention one last thing in that um, this was a scene that um, in the commentary for the movie, John Carpenter says was one of the most difficult ones to direct because there are so many characters and there are a lot of characters that have lines and they're in such a small space that he was really yeah. concerned about the blocking and about making it interesting. And I think it actually works out really, really well. You know, it'll continue into tomorrow's minute, but I think it's interesting because you hardly see anybody's mouths while they're talking which again is kind of like that, like I mentioned with that, uh, the shot of the footsteps where we don't see who says that. It is kind of a subtle mystery. You know, obviously we know it's Kurt Russell talking when he says that, but the fact that you don't see them adds just a little bit more of kind of who are, who is this and who, who are these people and who's, who's who they say they are. So it kind of works in, in its favor, I think. And um, I think it, this scene works pretty well in, in giving that kind of claustrophobic feel as well. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people, when they see a movie, think that the hardest thing to film is the hardest thing or is the most complicated looking thing. When in reality, something like this is often the hardest to film and make make visually interesting and coherent. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, he does a great job. I mean, that is a tiny space. There are a ton of people in it. But uh, not only does it you know look good but it also heightens uh it also does heighten the tension jamming all of them together in the screen like that and as you say uh kind of obscuring their faces and mouths oftentimes uh something that uh we really aren't used to in a lot of dialogue scenes yeah it's definitely something that you're probably taught to avoid as a cinematographer <laughs> but it, it works works extremely well in this in this uh this scene in this movie so yeah from here on out we get a lot of these scenes of like very tight spaces with like the entire cast of the movie crammed into them so this is a good uh good example of where that kind of begins and and how careful the blocking is and i'm sure we'll, we'll dig into it a little bit more tomorrow because we get a little bit more uh, kind of camera movement through this this uh little small setting that we're uh, we're crammed in here so I think that's uh, that's more or less all I had for, for Minute 58. Do you have anything else you wanted to uh, bring up? No. Yeah, no. This this minute continues, and I'm, I'm sure we'll have a lot more to say then. Sure. So I think that'll wrap up Minute 58, but uh, make sure you find us in iTunes and subscribe if you haven't already. If you use a different podcast aggregator, if you're using something like um, Podcast Addict or Stitcher, we're also there as well. But I also I always bring up uh, iTunes so uh, because if you leave us a review or a rating on iTunes, that can have a major positive impact for the show. Um, you know, obviously it helps us, uh, you know, collect some feedback, but at the same time, it also makes the show easier for people to find in iTunes, which is kind of the, the primary place where folks are finding finding podcasts. So uh, if you do like the show, if you want to leave us a review, we greatly appreciate that. But uh, while you're doing that, don't forget, you can always come back tomorrow for another episode of The Thing Minute. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Thing Minute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper, signing out.